Dusty, what's the one book you can always find in our car when we're on a trip? Honestly, Mike, it is usually a Moon travel guide. That's right. Moon is our favorite travel guidebook publisher because not only are they a source for ethical travel and the best ways to get away, but their books also are packed full of information on everything from sites to see, trails to hike, restaurants, and lodging, all from real authors who are local to the areas they're writing about. That's right. And we're so excited that this year we are again partnering with Moon Travel Guides. Ready to cross something off your travel bucket list in 2024? Have a lot of great ideas for trips, but don't know how to get started or keep your itinerary organized? Wherever your wanderings might take you or inspire you to go, Moon Travel has you covered. Moon Travel is the travel guidebook publisher for ethical travel. Don't spend months trying to craft the perfect getaway when you can do it all with Moon. Whether you're headed abroad, planning to take to the open road, or want to wander the trails of a national park, make sure to pack a Moon Travel Guide with you. Through the end of 2024, our listeners can get 20% off any Moon Travel Guide when they use the code GAZE20 at checkout. That's amazing. And that is code GAZE24, G-A-Z-E-2-4 for 20% off any Moon travel guide in Moon's entire library. And that is just for our listeners, and you cannot find that anywhere else. Be sure to visit Moon.com. Head to our show notes and check it out and see Moon's entire collection of travel guidebooks. Hello. And welcome to Trail Mix by Gaze at the National Parks, the podcast. I'm Dusty. And I'm Mike. This year in season two, we featured two Trail Mix episodes about John Muir and Teddy Roosevelt, two people who played instrumental roles in the creation of our national parks. In light of the Sierra Club's recent statements about confronting the racism of John Muir, and in addition to the racist attitudes and practices that existed in much of Teddy Roosevelt's work, we want to take another look at the work of these two men and how their work to preserve our natural outdoor spaces came with a price tag of pain and disadvantage to many. Today, we're going to specifically look at a few examples of the systemic racism present in the early years of conservation, the creation of the national parks, and the people or founders whose names are often so prevalent in outdoor space. While all of the info we'll be covering has been publicly available for years, finding it becomes much more difficult when there is an agenda for creating, teaching, and upholding a narrative that paints certain people and their actions in a certain way. And as you and I, Mike, have discussed many times, the acknowledgement and undoing of this false American narrative that we have been taught and also taught to celebrate is the collective reckoning that America is currently facing. In other words... Propaganda pervades. A very quick example being the myth story of Thanksgiving, which was invented to help white Europeans feel better about invasion and genocide of Native people. Or anytime you see a textbook claim that the American Civil War was about states' rights and not about slavery. This is all propaganda designed to soften or erase the actions of history. And this false American narrative most certainly includes the outdoors and the natural spaces we currently call national parks. Back on July 22nd, 2020, the executive director of the Sierra Club, Michael Brune, published a post on the Sierra Club's website entitled, Pulling Down Our Monuments. We highly recommend going to their website and reading all of it. He opens with, quote, the Sierra Club is a 128-year-old organization with a complex history, some of which has caused significant and immeasurable harm. As defenders of black life pull down Confederate monuments across the country, we must also take this moment to re-examine our past and our substantial role in perpetuating white supremacy, end quote. He continues with, quote, 
The most monumental figure in the Sierra Club's past is John Muir, beloved by many of our members. His writings taught generations of people to see the sacredness of nature. But Muir maintained friendships with people like Henry Fairfield Osborne, who worked for both the conservation of nature and the conservation of the white race. Head of the New York Zoological Society and the Board of Trustees of the American Museum of Natural History, Osborne also helped found the American Eugenics Society in the years after Muir's death. And Muir was not immune to the racism peddled by many in the early conservation movement. He made derogatory comments about black people and indigenous people that drew on deeply harmful racist stereotypes, though his views later evolved in his life. As the most iconic figure in Sierra Club history, Muir's words and actions carry an especially heavy weight. They continue to hurt and alienate indigenous people and people of color who have come in contact with the Sierra Club, end quote. Some of the other founding members include David Starr Jordan and Joseph LeConte. Does that name sound familiar, Mike? Yeah, Mount LeConte in uh, yes, Smoky Mountains. That's right. Mm-hmm. Mount LeConte and Smoky Mountains also. There's a ton of stuff named after him. Mm-hmm. They were both advocates for white supremacy. And as Brune refers to it as, quote, it's pseudoscientific arm, end quote, eugenics. All right. So eugenics. Woof. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. Have you heard this term before? Yes, I have. Great. Let's. Mm-hmm. What does this term mean? Um, for those of us who may be unfamiliar with eugenics, eugenics, as defined by Merriam-Webster's, is, quote, the practice or advocacy of controlled, selective breeding of human populations as by sterilization to improve the population's genetic composition, end quote. Now, one could argue that the racist views of many of the founding members were that of the 1890s, but the club remained exclusive with its membership all the way through the 1960s. And with the preservation of the makeup of the club's members came the preservation of these racist ideals. Brun says, quote, the whiteness and privilege of our early membership fed into a very dangerous idea, one that's still circulating today. It's the idea that exploring, enjoying, and protecting the outdoors can be separated from human affairs. Such willful ignorance is what allows some people to shut their eyes to the reality that the wild places we love are also the ancestral homelands of native peoples. Forced off their lands in the decades or centuries before they became national parks, it allows them to overlook, too, the fact that only people insulated from systemic racism and brutality can afford to focus solely on preserving wilderness. Black communities, indigenous communities, and communities of color continue to endure the traumatic burden of fighting for their right to a healthy environment while simultaneously fighting for freedom from discrimination and police violence, end quote. The post continues on to outline the steps the Sierra Club plans to take to help undo harm they've caused and their goal to center the voices they have marginalized and create a more inclusive outdoor space for everyone. Similarly, Teddy Roosevelt, who is often celebrated as a progressive leader, has also been cited for his racist writings and attitudes towards Black, Indigenous, Cuban, Puerto Rican, and Filipino people. At this time, the Museum of Natural History in New York has asked for the removal of the 10-foot statue of Teddy Roosevelt because it, quote, depicts Black and Indigenous people as subjugated and racially inferior, end quote. So the statue, if you haven't seen it, 
um, includes Teddy Roosevelt on horseback. Um, basically, chest proud, moving forward on his horse while he is flanked by um, an indigenous person on the left and an enslaved person on the right. Their eyes are both downcast and their hands basically are working to guide the horse um, on either side. So it's not great. No, <laughs> I mean, it's if you not. think about like the idea of hierarchy and like just also like when someone is bigger and someone is taller in art, um, they're more important. Um, that is something from art history that is like consistent from the time of like, you know, early art. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and when you look at it, like mm-hmm. if you think about just sort of like the composition of how the people are arranged, mm-hmm. like he is on the horseback right. and he has power. Right. He's the one with the power. The two of them standing next to him don't have power. He's also in front of them. Right. So, I mean, like there's no way in the world that to me, when I look at this, that it doesn't look like this white person is more forward and has more power than the black person and the indigenous person represented in the statue. And I think it only reinforces the racist views if you really, if you're taking a, a really hard look at it, and you don't even have to take that hard of a look at it to really see that. Um, and if you think about all of the indignities, especially that Native Americans went through, while marching places as ordered and, you know, um, chaperoned by the U.S. Army from one space to another, it really does. For me, that is evocative of the Trail of Tears and things like that. Uh, yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. Um, and obviously any sort of like movement of the slave trade um, by white men as well. And back to propaganda for a second and sort of like this let's preserve a version of this narrative so that we can soften the reality of what happened. Like that to me looks like it was created as a way to say like, let's, let's show how helpful Teddy Roosevelt was to these two groups of people. I mean, like that's, uh, you know, he was celebrated for being progressive. And that to me is not only like, uh, prime example of tokenism Mm -hmm. but sort of like a like whitewashing of the truth the white oh huge whitewashing of the truth yeah aside from being a proponent of manifest destiny roosevelt is constantly recorded speaking of people of other races as inferior less intelligent incompetent we're not going to repeat any of his racist words here but they are present all throughout his political career and not that hard to find And Teddy Roosevelt is often cited just behind Andrew Jackson for his racist views and practices regarding indigenous people. During his time as governor of New York, he actively tried to, quote, absorb, end quote, the Native Americans of New York through, quote, Americanization, end quote, through breaking up reservations, introducing American education like boarding schools, and by granting citizenship status to those Native Americans who returned their land that they'd been granted in treaties. The racist words and actions of John Muir and Teddy Roosevelt merely skim the surface of the problem. The facts are that systemic racism, genocide, and forced removal is the root of why these natural spaces we now call national parks were even available for us to preserve. Since the founding of the NPS and even up until today, the narrative of our public lands has presented us with quote unquote, beautiful, uninhabited outdoor spaces that are worthy of preservation. 
And while this narrative may have aided in the conservation of many ecosystems, animals, plants, habitats, and natural formations, it erases the role of indigenous people. The reality is that these areas we preserve as national parks were for thousands of years inhabited and preserved by indigenous people. And the conservation and relationship to this land was centered in their deeply held core values. So how did the story of uninhabited space become the collectively accepted narrative of our public lands? It was certainly through forced removal, treaty agreements, many of which were not honored, and also the creation of laws which further distanced Native peoples from their lands they inhabited. The first written documentation of the separation of Native people and what we now call public lands came with the opinion from Chief Justice John Marshall in the case of Johnson versus McIntosh, which essentially stated that the U.S. government owned the land and that the Native people had title occupancy, meaning that they could occupy the land, but they did not own the land. In an article published in Public Land and Resources Law Review entitled Ethnic Cleansing and America's Creation of National Parks, author Isaac Cantor explains, quote, Indian title occupancy was also incomplete in that it was not freely alienable. The government had the exclusive power to deal with the tribes for their land. This conclusion led necessarily to the consequences that the government would subsequently own Indian lands and have the burden of managing and disposing of the vast public domain created when it extinguished Indian title. Thus, the groundwork was laid for two very different but oddly related domains, the national parks and the Indian reservation system. The process which would lead to Native Americans and national parks occupying separate islands on the American landscape took about a century following Johnson versus McIntosh to complete, end quote. So to put that simply, the U.S. government established laws to forcibly remove Native Americans and then made laws that say that it owned and controlled the land that they had always inhabited. That includes the National Park Service's Organic Act of 1916, which states that the goal of the national parks, quote, is to conserve the scenery and the natural and historic objects and the wildlife therein, and to provide for the enjoyment of the same in such manner and by such means as will leave them unimpaired for the enjoyment of future generations, end quote. A plan I think everyone would be on board with. However, this legislation left out any and all acknowledgement of Native people, furthering the narrative that this space was open and uninhabited, and leaving out an entire group of people like this further erases them from the narrative. Now, we need to talk about the word wilderness. As defined by Merriam-Webster, wilderness means a tract or region uncultivated and uninhabited by human beings, or an area essentially undisturbed by human activity together with its naturally developed life community, end quote. To call any of our public lands wilderness is, technically speaking, according to Merriam-Webster, inaccurate as they were inhabited by people for millennia. It was only when Native people were forcibly removed did they now appear uninhabited. Another major piece of conservation legislation was the Wilderness Act of 1964. The beginning of this act states, quote, in order to assure that an increasing population does not occupy and modify all areas within the United States, leaving no lands designated for preservation and protection in their natural condition, end quote. 
This implies that the area of land now known as the United States had unoccupied and unmodified land. So in essence, it may have certainly looked like there was untouched land, but that was only because of the laws that forcibly removed native people from this land. This act goes on to define wilderness saying, quote, a wilderness is hereby recognized as an area where the earth and its community of life are untrammeled by man, where man himself is a visitor who does not remain, an area of undeveloped land retaining its primeval character and influence without permanent improvements or human habitation, end quote. This act nowhere acknowledges or mentions Native people. This is just one of the many, many examples of what we mean by systemic racism. This law literally erases the group of people who lived on and preserved all of the land that this act is talking about. While laws were legally drawing boundaries between Native people and the land they once preserved, writers during this time were also writing about human relationship to nature. Around the same time in the early 1800s, the first idea of a national park started being written about. Artist George Catland called for preserving part of the nation's land, and his vision for this contained both animals and people. This was also supported by the writings of Washington Irving, John James Audubon, and Osborne Russell. Washington Irving even specifically mentioned the preservation of land specifically as a, quote, last refuge to the Indian, end quote. But by the time we got to the 1870s, writing about nature began being centered in escapism and spiritualism. Enter John Muir again. His writings are a perfect example of this. Cantor says in his article, quote, environmentalists and writers of this later time period conceived of people and nature as very separate, perhaps even fundamentally incompatible, end quote. This further separated people from nature, further erasing indigenous people from the land. Okay, so here we have these two sort of approaches to the idea of preserving land. Mm-hmm. Like, so early in the 1800s, we have George Catlin and all these other writers saying, like, we love the idea of preserving land. This also lines up with, like, when we talked about artists preserving land in France that then later became national parks. Like, that seems to line up. Right. In the kind of spirit of environmentalism and, like, also preservation for future generations. And their idea, these writers' idea of preservation included native people native people right knowing that part of like the reason it included that was because they were stewards of land right they were preservers of land they were our first conservationists right and just to like throw things to things that are currently happening in our world california and the intense wildfires that are happening right now um the Native Americans used to do controlled burns, and about a hundred years ago, they were outlawed by California law. And they're starting to realize that, oh, maybe we should be doing these controlled burns now um, to, right, right, you know, help when it comes to wildfire season, so they're not so bad. Um, Wildfires are part of a forest natural life cycle, right. and that's a way that, as it, you know, as someone who preserves an area of land like if that's what that forest needs that's right. you know part of helping but that in a forest controlled survive, sort of way in a controlled way right because they were stewards of the land and here we have later writers and later thinkers that 
are erasing these people from the land. So let's talk about this sort of like thing that John Muir and other writers that this time in the later 1800s are doing where they're talking about like how like these beautiful untouched spaces, obviously now these spaces look untouched and uninhabited because all of the indigenous people have been forcibly Mm -hmm. removed. Right. And so now you have John Muir particularly talking about how like escaping into nature is a spiritual journey Mm -hmm. and like going into nature and like being with it and like having it, you know, like renew yourself. Right. I still to this day see that pervading in all the tons of things that we talk about. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, like that still exists in like the collective consciousness about our relationship to nature today. Right. That but this, I also think, you know, besides Mir, you have Ralph Waldo Emerson, you oh, have certainly. Walt Whitman that are Thoreau, also in Thoreau that are... Who are also Thoreau particularly problematic on and, his well, own. And Walt Whitman too. Oh, certainly. Um, but, you know, that was something that was pushed and romanticized yes. for a long time. Um, and so I think that started to probably trickle into the collective conscious of hey, if we're going to preserve these spaces, like, they should be for, you know, this deep reflective, right. you, know, right. you know, spiritual experience that you're having in nature without people that right. <laughs> were the stewards right. of these lands exactly. for so long. And yeah. this idea of, like, land that is untouched became sort of, like, this thing that kept getting promoted. Right. Right? Like, like land that is never to be touched land that like is precious and sacred that we should like we should not take anything from it because like that is literally literally the law right now of a national park is that you can't remove anything from a national park right so that's an example of how the writings of the late 1870s influenced the law when it came to the national parks. Right. So now we have writings that present a vision of preserving land that includes native people and writings about how keeping land completely untouched is highly is the highest form of preservation. But why did John Muir's vision of untouched, uninhabited wilderness rise to the top of collective consciousness? Well, Racism. (laughs) Right. And more laws that forcibly remove Native people and manifest destiny and Western expansion and colonialism on repeat. Right. When I was looking, doing the research for this, this moment in particular really, really made me think of that phrase we say all the time, which is leave no trace. Right. And it sort of just really hit me in a totally different way. Mm that yes, leave no trace is a principle that says like, go into the outdoors, but leave it as you found it. Right. Right. That's part of preserving an outdoor space. However, leave no trace could also be like said of the goal of what it was to leave no trace of any indigenous people of this one particular area. Right. Right, a complete erasure. I mean, yeah. we can still celebrate the fact that there are cliff del- dwellings at Mesa Verde, but those people are no longer there right. to inhabit them um, or to claim that space as their own. No. Um, even though no. it's their ancestral homelands. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I mean, are we surprised? No. With like American, the way America goes? No, not no, at all. No, I'm not. 
No, and that comes from like not buying the narrative that was like handed to me in elementary school sure. and high school right. about sort of like the how this country was created. Right. But no, that doesn't that doesn't surprise mm-hmm. me. With liberty and justice for all. For all, right. For all. Exactly. Okay. So we want to be clear that we are huge lovers of the outdoors and national parks and that this is not like a product boycott situation. The beginnings of this uh, involve a, a deep amount of racism and therefore we should not go to national parks. That is not what we are saying. We have infinite viable reasons to protect and interact with our natural spaces, but we are saying that having context for where you are and what you are visiting is vital. We can no longer accept the narrative that our national parks were completely untouched, uninhabited, and unpeopled areas of lands. They were not. They were homes to many, many families for thousands of years. So what can you do? Educate yourself about the indigenous people that originally inhabited and preserved the land you are exploring. Acknowledge the native people who inhabited and preserved the land where you live support legislation that includes native people and support the return of native lands to their original native tribes. Our sources for today's trail mix were the article Ethnic Cleansing and the Creation of America's National Parks by Isaac Cantor, published on Public Land Resources and Law Review. The statement from Michael Brune, published on SierraClub.org. The article Governor Theodore Roosevelt and the Indians of New York State by Lawrence M. Hauptman, published in the periodical Proceedings of the American Philosophical Society. The article, Teddy Roosevelt's Racist and Progressive Legacy, Historian Says, is part of Monument Debate by Arturo Conti, published on NBCNews.com. And the article, Sierra Club Must Confront the Racism of John Muir by Lucy Tompkins, published in the New York Times. This has been Trail Mix by Gaze at the National Parks, the podcast, and we're here to remind you to hike early and hike often, and that adventure is always out there. Gaze at the National Parks was created and is hosted by Dustin Ballard and Michael Ryan. To see images from this episode, follow our Instagram at Gaze at the National Parks. To contact us, email us at gazeatthenationalparks at gmail.com. And to learn more about the parks visited in Season 2, visit our website, gazeatthenationalparks.com. That's gaze, G-A-Z-E. All original artwork featured on Instagram and on our website is by Michael Ryan. All original music was written by Dave Seaman and performed by Dave Seaman, Mariella Klinger, and Sean Sklios. Our music producer was Skylar Fortgang. This episode was edited by Dustin Ballard. We would like to acknowledge that while recording this episode of Trail Mix, we were on the traditional and stolen lands of the Lenape people, now known as Ocean County, New Jersey. This episode of Trail Mix concludes season two. It has been such a pleasure. What a pleasure. The season three trail map premieres on September 28th. That is the trailer for season three that will tell you all of the parks that we will be covering in season three. And some surprises. See you then.